of another candle. Considering the intent of observing Lent, and if we're being honest with ourselves, today's text is quite challenging for those of us who live in relative wealth compared to the rest of the world's population, and who easily are steered to build relationships with those in our own socioeconomic bracket. I have to confess uh, uh, this includes me, right? Um, how many of us here have advanced degrees? Multiple advanced degrees. I don't mean for you to raise your hands, but y'all can. Advanced multiple degrees, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, we own vehicles. We own homes, many in uh, fairly affluent neighborhoods. Or at the very least, we, most of us live off more than $50 a day which compared to the world standards is quite a lot. I don't mention this to shame any one, of the, any one of us or to say that we aren't living in proximity or relationship with the poor, the outcast, or the marginalized, but I mention it to put today's text into perspective, that we might be challenged and consider how Jesus' words about kingdom economics speak directly to us as disciples. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15 today, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the parallels of this text with chapter 15 just before it. So allow me to give just a brief overview, reminding us where we are in the story. Jesus has been telling the good story, teaching about life following him on Creator's good road. And those in power continue to question his authority, and they complain about him. We read in chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and scroll keepers ask, this man welcomes outcasts to join him at the table and eat with him. In response to their constant complaining, Jesus' M.O. of storytelling resumes, and he shares a parable of caring for the one lost sheep over the 99 who are found, what we just sang about, actually. It's about the worth of those who are lost, the outcasts, who find their way back home. This same sentiment is then immediately repeated in the story of the two sons. You know, the story with the one son who squanders his early inheritance, and he ends up working amongst some pigs, and he eventually returns home where the older brother can't comprehend the father's warm greeting toward this younger brother. We then arrive at today's text in chapter 16. I'm going to read from the First Nations version. You're welcome to follow along if you have it in hand or just listen. Verses 1 through 15. Then he told the ones who walked the road with him another story. There was a man with so many possessions, he had to have someone to oversee them all. The rich man was told that his overseer was mishandling his possessions. He sent for the man and said to him, Why am I hearing these things about you? Give me an account of all I possess, for I can no longer trust you to oversee my belongings." 
man said to himself, what will I do? I'm too old to dig ditches and too proud to beg from others. Then came an idea to his mind. I know what to do so that others will help me and give me a place to live. He went to each person who was in debt to the rich man. He said to the first one, how much do you owe? One hundred containers of oil, the man answered. Make it be fifty, the overseer told him. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? One hundred baskets of wheat, he answered. Make it be eighty, the overseer said back to him. When the rich man found out what the dishonest overseer had done, he shook his head but admired the man's craftiness. Do you see what this means? Creator sets free, who is Jesus asked. The children of darkness are sometimes wiser in the ways of this world than the children of light are in the ways of the spirit world above. So then, use the possessions of this world to help others in need, who will become your friends. Then when possessions run out, these new friends of Creator's good road will always welcome you into their homes. If Creator cannot trust you with the possessions of this world, then how will he trust you with the treasures of the spirit world above? But if you do well with the small things of this world, you will do well with the great things of the spirit world above. No one can be loyal to two rival chiefs. He will have to choose between them, for either he will hate one chief and love the other, or he will honor one and resent the other. You cannot be loyal to the great provider and to possessions at the same time. When the separated ones, the Pharisees, heard him, they shrugged their shoulders and rolled their eyes, for they loved their many possessions. Creator sets free, said to them, You always make yourselves look good to others, but the great spirit sees your heart. What many see as valuable, he sees as worthless. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus has turned his attention to those following him, the disciples. Though initially, indirectly, he's still talking to the Pharisees. He has taught the disciples about kingdom economics portrayed in table fellowship with the inclusion of those seen as outsiders in the lost but found community, and now through the teaching about possessions. This parable, though, is a little bit complicated as it seems that Jesus might be advocating for dishonest practices. But he uses the parable to address the use of wealth or leveraging privilege, something I'd like to focus our attention on today. Leveraging privilege to welcome the poor, those who cannot reciprocate in such a way that would have advanced one's social status. And that's an idea we'll return to in just a minute. In Jesus' parable, I hear the concepts of proximity and of mutual aid. Jesus says, new friends of Creator's good road will always welcome you into their homes. I want to pause and consider who the characters are in this parable. We first have the rich, the one with so many possessions, 
The rich are previously introduced as those over whom Jesus pronounces misfortune, those who find security in their own wealth, and those who engage in reciprocal contracts with their social peers without regard for those who were seen as having lower status, the rich. We then have a manager. In the Roman context, this could have been a slave, which interestingly enough, a slave could have been owned by two masters. But more likely, this manager is a free person who had access to his manager's wealth and acted as his agent, obviously, here, as we read in the text. Managers would have had enviable status, so much so that a person might actually sell themselves as a means of social promotion to a wealthy man in order to administer his holdings. This feels a little mind-blowing to me. And while my initial reaction is, well, that's some messed up economics, um, I also kind of paused when I had that thought and realized, but we kind of do this too, don't we? We sell ourselves for social promotion when we become subject to the isms that control our social and political world today. We have the manager. And then we have those in debt. Those who receive the cancellation of their debt, a debt that would be best understood as directly impacting the rich man's purse, if you will, and not what might be seen as the manager's take. Okay? And the dishonest manager faces a crisis, best understood as a forfeiture of his social status. Therefore, the only options he can entertain and he voices, in verse 3, are manual labor and begging. Remember, these options would locate him among the unclean and degraded, or even the expendable in society, which is why he says he's too proud to do so, right? He knows he's going to lose his household attachment. Literally, the roof over his head will be gone, okay? Now, when I use the word proximity... I imply an investment in relationship. If you've heard me beat any drum throughout the years, it is this one. It is about proximity, being in relationships that are long-term, that require listening and learning as we grow in belonging to one another and where we experience the fullness of being made in the image of God. Proximity is about relationship about making friends. It's about engaging in kingdom economics. I have most deeply, I think, experienced this through the 20 years of building a relationship with my siblings in Haiti. And these relationships affect the way I relate in my immediate neighborhood, in the everyday. I am always welcome in the home of my friends in Haiti, because we are family. We have become kin. In the parable here, these new friends that Jesus speaks about are those who received the manager's redistribution of wealth through the cancellation of debt. And this was no small debt. One commentator likened it to the produce that would have 
been um, out of a large olive grove probably 20 to 25 times that of an ordinary household. Okay. Therefore, the debt that's forgiven is large. And given Jesus' language where he says each person, the first, and another, given that language, we can assume that the manager repeated the redistribution of wealth many times over. And maybe, well, he was kind of covering his butt, or maybe he heard the Spirit say something to him. We don't really know. He does leverage his privilege, and he gives up what he has, and in the process, he gains some friends. And Jesus points out in verse 9, he ends up overstepping the social boundaries between the rich and the poor in order to participate in a form of economic redistribution that's grounded in kinship. As Jesus is teaching the disciples, the attention actually then zooms back in on the Pharisees one more time. And they react in verse 14. They shrugged their shoulders and rolled their eyes, for they loved their many possessions. We might pause and ask, well, what kind of possessions do they have? And while the attention here is on the Pharisees, who respond a little bit like spiritual adolescents, if you will, uh, this would have been a challenge to any disciple who is following Jesus. You see, friendship and economics in the Greco-Roman world were inseparable. The exchange of money created, maintained, or solidified various forms of friendship. The term friends would have even been used to spare so seen lesser friends from the social embarrassment of being branded as clients. But Jesus is talking about friends as kin, true friends, family. So what possessions do the Pharisees have? At minimum, <laughs> I did, <laughs> two Sundays in a row. At minimum, they possess status. And they were preoccupied with maintaining that status, which was intrinsically bound in a trifecta with friendship and economics. Jesus, back in chapter 14, already challenged the Pharisees to engage in hospitality without concern of reciprocal obligation, which was what we would expect out of the rich. And as we've heard before in chapter 6 of Luke, Jesus teaches about giving without expectation of return and to those who cannot reciprocate in the expected ways within the society. He's saying that kingdom economics secure eternal treasures, those of the spirit world above. In Jesus' words that we read last week concerning allegiance, I hear again echoed here with the words, you cannot be loyal to the great provider and to possessions at the same time. We are simply stewards. And it's probably one of the hardest things for us as folks who live within a highly individualistic and capitalistic society to wrap our minds around. But stewardship for Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament understanding of Yahweh being the true owner of all 
things, all land and property, and human beings being the ones to steward well those resources and be held accountable to Yahweh, something I think we can learn a lot about from our First Nations siblings. Eternal treasures are being secured in the kingdom economics of creators, good road. The logic, I think, then follows. Friends are eternal treasures, Belonging to one another as kin in the kingdom is eternal. Therefore, we act as equal friends, rooted in solidarity across socioeconomic lines, experienced through practicing hospitality. This is the good news we come to experience on Creator's Good Road. Here at Trinity, in our practices, and I'm going to literally read what we say, we say this. Jesus is at the center of our faith journey in his birth, death, life, and resurrection. We find the most concrete expression of God's redemptive action throughout history. Because of this, we aspire to embody the love and life of Jesus in everything we do. As an act of love, we practice hospitality, inviting those who are hurting, wandering, and wondering to discover the love of Jesus. We embody the love of Jesus in the world by serving in ways that align with our gifts and passions, participating in God's re-narration of the world, and living the kingdom into existence through faithful presence in everyday spaces with simplicity, authenticity, and creativity. Friends, let us practice hospitality, serving and participating with Creator on the good road this Lenten season with imagination, and with creative action. Jesus' final statements in today's text, I think, leave us with some important questions. And as I typically do, I don't want to answer those questions for us. (laughs) We all have work to do. So I am going to um, share these questions with you. They are in the bulletin. I think these are questions we each must ask ourselves and we must wrestle with. And they have implications for our faith community. They are these. What have you held as valuable that the Great Spirit sees as worthless? As we step out of the crowd following Jesus and accept the invitation to Creator's Good Road, What might we need to allow the Great Spirit to examine in our own hearts, letting go of the preoccupation with how we might look to others? And to which new friends is Creator's Good Road leading us toward in proximity, solidarity, and redistribution, grounded in kinship? May these questions challenge us this week and in our Lenten journey, and in the days ahead. Will you pray with me? God, I recognize that parables are very complex, and we're constantly learning new things out of parables. You say, let anyone who has ears hear. Today, as we have read your words, 
as you have shared the story of the good road with us. Might you allow us to leave this gathering with the ears to hear you, to ask ourselves the hard questions, to be shaped by your spirit, to be led in new ways outside of our comfort, across any boundaries that we have set up or we have just been so used to keeping because of society. And as we contemplate what you have for us, may it be a seed that is birthed and grows into the fruit that you desire in the months ahead. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You can turn to the Lord's Table Liturgy in your bulletin there. As a reminder, um, the communion elements here um, are gluten-free, not allergen-free. You're welcome to peel those open and listen to the sacred sound of the foil um, all together. The table here at Trinity is open to anyone um, who would like to participate. If you have a prayer request or would like connected in another way, you're welcome to, to talk with me. Um, you also can fill out a connection card online or over on the side and place it in the offering basket that's there for anyone who calls Trinity their church home to leave an offering. All right, you can join me in the bolded parts. Gentle one, in the midst of all the world's noise, we struggle to hear your whispers of care. Come and rest, you beckon. Our never-ending lists, days too short, pressures so high, they make us weary. Whether our labor is paid or the search for work is our toil, whether we tend with care to the needs of our loved ones at home, or gift time to the collective cries for justice, there are so many ways we grow tired. Reaching out, patient and inviting, come and rest, you beckon again and again. To trust in you is to remember limitations, release control, and let our earnest offerings be enough. You do not ask any one person to lift the burdens from the world. The sacred labors of life belong to all of us and none of us. For everything that doesn't get done, for all that we desire to protect but cannot, for every hurt we cannot tend, fill us with a deep assurance of your presence that abides in all things, through all things. You abandon no one in their struggle. Let your Sabbath be our renewal of body, of mind, of spirit. Now we come around the Lord's table speaking these words to one another. Come if your faith is blossoming and full, and come if it is but a tiny seed planted in your heart. Come if you always show up for this meal 
and come if this is your very first taste. Come if you have always walked with Christ and come if you have stumbled along the way. But come, for our God awaits to serve you with joy, with affirmation, with hope, with peace. For all who seek to experience new life in Christ, eat and drink the body of Christ broken for you and the cup of the new covenant shed for you.